My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Why do I keep swinging? I'm hitting all the... Yeah, what, I have all different, swing? I have other buttons I'm supposed to be pressing, and today I'm very swingy. Do you, do you say, swing, like... Swing, do you, When you get turned on, do you say... Let me ask you. Do you say, I'm wet, or do you say, I have a chub? Excellent question. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and this is our 250th episode. Five years ago this week, I sat down before the Girl Boner Radio mic for the first time and shared my sex ed story with little idea where the show would lead. I wasn't even sure what my next episode would be about or when it would happen or whether I would take to interviewing people for an audience versus for writing, which is completely different. I was so nervous I almost peed in the chair until the moment the intro music started and I began. There was this feeling of, oh, This is where I'm supposed to be. And that hasn't changed a bit. And thanks to you all, to every person who listens, to guests and listeners who've shared their hearts with me, sponsors I've had the privilege of working with, and engineers past and present, huge shout out to Gabe and Mackenzie. I'm still going. Speaking of Gabe, I just received a clip from him on his experience working with me and on the show for several years. So stay tuned to the very end and you will get a little bonus. And side note, I love podcasting so much that I decided to offer a class about it soon. So for anyone who wants to get started, have a positive impact, and make money through the medium, which you can please drop me a note or sign up for monthly updates at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. In honor of this landmark episode, I thought I would share some of the show's most memorable moments, which were not so easy to decide on. I'll have to do more compilations in the future for sure. You'll hear several people's sex ed memories, sexpert tips on pleasure and solo play and squirting, ways to improve your body image, and even some interesting sounds from my dog. I'll also share excerpts from interviews with some of my most inspiring guests and a scary Halloweenish occurrence that happened in the studio. Then I'll wrap up with a moving love story and circle back to swinging and chubs. Now let's get back to fun boner questions, shall we? In preparation for my very first episode, I took to the streets in Los Angeles asking strangers, what exactly is a girl boner? So how would you define girl boner? Uh, I have no words to describe that. Indescribable. I like that. Thank you so much. So tell me what a girl boner is. Something involving the chest area. Ooh, the chest area. And is it a positive thing? Yes. And would you say it's um, a chest area for everyone or, or one gender? Um, one gender. Yeah? Yeah. Women? Women, yes. Awesome. Very cool. And you like them? Oh, yeah, sure. I do. <laughs> awesome. We like you for that. Thank you so much. So what, in your opinion, is a girl boner? A girl that has an erection off something. 
That's a great answer. It's a good thing? Uh, yes, may, might be. <laughs> might be. Okay, I like it. I'm sorry, I made you blush a little bit. Did I make you blush? Uh, a little bit, yes. A little bit, Thank yeah. You. <laughs> You're welcome. Have a good day. What do you think a girl boner is? I have no idea. No idea at all? No. Take a guess. What do you think it's related to? I'm trying to think of a, of a good way to say it. Okay. Mm. Take your time. You're thinking something. I can see it. <laughs> you need a drink, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what what uh, do you think it's positive? Good I think so. I mean, if guys can get it, why can't girls? Yeah. Amen. You know what? That was a great answer. Thank you so much. How would you define um, a girl boner? Mm, does it have something with bonos? It does have something to do with boners, yes. Something like a present or... Ooh, a present. It is kind of a present. It's a present for ourselves and for other people. Yeah, because in German, bonus is, uh, means present. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Boner means present in Germany. Bonos. Bonos. Very, very close. That's so interesting. Another question I've been asking folks for years, what did you learn about sex and sexuality growing up? One of the more surprising responses came from someone I didn't expect to interview ever, my mother. She was visiting me, and I took her to the studio to check it out. And the next thing I knew, she was sitting at the mic ready to chat. Perhaps that runs in the family. But what hasn't exactly run in our family historically is speaking openly about sexuality. My mom was raised very conservatively religious as the daughter of missionaries in India, so I was surprised that she was up for a girl boner chat. Since then, she's become one of my favorite guests with three episodes now under her belt. No pun intended. I started by asking her what it's like to be girl boner's mom. It makes me feel proud to be girl boner's mother. Wow. Mm-hmm. I even have it, like, not in writing, but even better. I have it recorded. Oh, I've got no. proof. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let your father hear it. Oh, gosh. No. <laughs> good point. Good point. No, Dad's a good sport. Too. Yes, he is. He is. He's just, he might blush a little bit more than we do. My mom was homeschooled, and you can imagine what she didn't learn about sex on the mission. Her family's cook, whom she was really close to, helped fill in the gaps in a way she now finds pretty adorable. One day I was helping Dao in the kitchen. At least I called it helping. I'm sure I was in his way, and he was just too kind to tell me I wasn't. But um, Booty had been yowling around the house, obviously in heat, which I didn't really know much about then. And all of a sudden, here comes Buddha, and he jumped on her back and bit her neck and was growling, making these horrific noises. And I said, Dao... What's he doing? He's going to kill Bodhi. What's happening? And he said, oh, baby, don't you know? They're making kittens. But most people don't get any kitten tutorials. Maybe we should. The most common word to come up in my what did you learn question, that would probably be nothing. So did you absorb any positive or negative messages from that nothingness? (laughs) (laughs) Um... Well, I can only uh, I can only speak about um, the 1980s. You know, I can't speak about today. Uh, I grew up in the 80s, and uh, there was nothing. All you really had were uh, billboards telling you you shouldn't get abortion, and all you had were debates in school about that as well. And people pretty much felt that homosexuality was 
not just a sin, but just shouldn't exist, period. So in that environment, uh, when you're gay and you're dealing with that, you really have nothing. Now, several decades later, many people still relate to author G. Strangeway's experience. And some folks learned even more damaging messages. One guest I interviewed grew up in one of the largest religious cults in America and Britain. In an episode called Sex, Shame, and Religion, I asked what they learned about sex and their body. Oh, wow, August. There were so many of them. (laughs) You know, I feel like right from the beginning, um, I was taught that sex was dirty and dangerous. And, you know, one of the things about Christian science, as I experienced it, um, is the belief that the body isn't real. And therefore, any pain or pleasure within the body also isn't real. And then on top of this is is sort of heaped a lot of shame around that. So some of the first things that I was taught by my family um, included if I got um, if I had sex before I was married, um, I was probably going to get pregnant and I would probably be shamed by everyone because nobody would want to support a single mother. Um, I was taught that the man's needs are everything, that a woman um, shouldn't experience pleasure. A good, good woman will not experience pleasure during sex. It's more like a service that she has to do for the man. So and you'll notice this is all very hetero, heterosexual, very heteronormative. Um, and that if she in some way um, is in bed with a man and he... Uh, she wants to stop and he doesn't, he's not there yet, then she must keep going because he could go into a dangerous state of shock. Identifying as queer or female certainly makes for more barriers as far as sex ed, but most guys learn confusing messages too, often with equally perplexing consequences. In October 2017, Brett McGinn shared such an example. So the first time I masturbated, I actually had some of my best friends with me because it was like I needed their support because I didn't know how to get through it because I thought it was painful. And uh, yeah, it, you know, I, 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 there was just such a new feeling and I was so not used to it that it was uncomfortable. So my one friend said, every time you stop, I'm going to punch you in the shoulder because, you know, we were a couple rough young boys and I obviously won't share his name. But uh, so after about three welts on my arm, I finally finished and I realized what a glorious experience it was. Thankfully, not everyone's sex ed experience was negative. A small handful of the hundreds of people I've asked shared positive takeaways. Well, actually, I learned quite a lot. I, uh, you know, you were completely right when you say that Sweden is a more feminist society and it's also very sex-aware society. Sweden was, you know, the first country in the world, actually, to make sex education mandatory in schools uh, very early on. And uh, my experience when, when I went to school was that we started to talk about it in a very natural way from the beginning, you know, like sex was just a part of who we are as human beings. And actually, the funny thing is that when we think about it, 
we come from sex. We are here because two people at one point had sex. So it should really be something very, very natural for us. It seems so basic and practical. So why do we still struggle so much in the sex ed department in the U.S.? Learning virtually nothing about pleasure, plus many damaging societal messages. I wish I could pare the reasons down to a few sentences, but it's more complicated than that. You can definitely learn more about it in my book, Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment. Through all of my work, pleasure is a huge focus, as you probably know. I explored one of my most popular related subjects in an early episode called The Female Body, a.k.a. The Vulva Owner's Body, Turned On. I talked about mental arousal and wetness, nipple changes. If we continue to step into our being turned on, we start breathing harder and faster, potentially to the point of gasping. Our eyes glaze over, our pupils may widen, Those of us with fair skin may experience a full-body blush. This is the result of adrenaline causing our blood vessels to dilate in order to improve blood oxygen flow to our genitals. A truly magnificent thing happens, actually many magnificent things, when we embrace our sexuality and our capacity for pleasure, replacing hurtful beliefs with empowering ones. In that same episode, I shared thoughts from Jean Franzblau of SexualEsteemWithJean.com, who knows this from experience. It's a really exciting change. I begin to embrace the feeling of sexual arousal, and now I, I like ride it like a horse. So it's not like I'm avoiding it now. I'm saying hell yes to this. Knowing how powerful my sexuality is and how needed and necessary this energy is on the planet right now, specifically, in my opinion, when I'm feeling it, I am like, bring it on, bring it, like push that out. You know, what more can I do? What more can I feel? As you do the worthy work of sexual self-discovery, you might notice all kinds of things. Some of us find that the wetness becomes, well, more squirty. This is one of the more common questions I've received since launching Girl Boner. What is up with squirting? Is it real? Is it pee? Can we do it on purpose? So in another episode that first year, I explored squirting with Alexa Ames, a porn star and comedian with a background in nursing. I love performing. It's, you know, I think that it's in my blood to just be in front of people. And I love everything that's involved in making people smile. And, you know, even if they're with lewd and levacious jokes, terrible, (laughs) terrible fucking things. But, um, you know, I also have another thing going for me is that, you know, when you jump in front of a crowd, a lot of people are like, oh, just picture them naked. Usually (laughs) it's the other way around. I'm naked in front of the crowd. (laughs) I asked Alexa to speak to the difference between female ejaculation in porn versus in your bed, which led into some physiological basics of squirting. A little side note, though, you are just as sexually awesome if you never squirt too. And as you're about to hear, expecting the waterfalls you may have seen in porn could set you up for some disappointment. Um, There are a lot of differences. So you watch porn and you see this huge, big, like... Big gush of squirt. And a lot of times people are like, oh, that's just got to be piss. And that's why women start to think and they get embarrassed to squirt because in their own sexual life, they're like, I'm peeing or he's going to think I'm peeing. Well, the thing is, is on camera, I mean, it is possible to project out a squirt like that. But a lot of the time on camera, 
It is urine. Girls will drink a lot of water, dilute their urine, push it out, and it looks like squirt because, you know, you're watching it on you're paying yeah, for it. Yeah, you wouldn't it. see it if there was like a dribble. It's a fantasy. The- <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's it looks hot. But what a squirt is, is um so an orgasm is a series of muscle contractions caused by our involuntary autonomic nervous system. Uh, inside you have your G spot, also known as your Grafenberg spot, and your keen or your skein gland. Yeah. And your skein gland is a really spongy <clears throat> kind of feeling. A lot of people when you go inside the vagina, right by the uh, the G spot, it starts to harden as a woman gets aroused. That skein gland is right next to the urethra, and what it does is when it gets hardened, you're basically absorb. It's basically absorbing all those ejaculatory fluids, the you know the wetness, the lubrication that you're feeling when you're getting aroused. Um, it's just compiled of proteins and enzymes, really similar to uh, the ejaculatory fluids of a male, caused by the prostate and what it's doing when you're pushing on that skein gland in your G spot in that rapid motion, you're redirecting the fluids into the skein gland and pushing it out through the urethra. So a normal squirt does have trace amounts of urine in it because it's coming out your urethra and sometimes out very close to the urethra. So there can be trace amounts of urine, but by no means is it urine. It's just a bunch of proteins, yeah. enzymes, and that lubrication that you're already feeling. Pretty interesting, right? In addition to super sexy and sciencey topics, meeting and connecting with awesome people through this show is by far one of my favorite perks. And while I've worked in entertainment long enough to not really get starstruck, I had serious butterflies before chatting with Margaret Cho. But somehow I managed to get out sentences. I have to thank you, first of all, because you were one of the first women that I ever saw speak openly and shamelessly about sex. Uh, what inspires you to be so open, particularly when it comes to alternative sexuality? Well, I mean, it's my life. You know, I don't and I, I don't know, like, why anybody wouldn't be open about their lives. Is You know, for me, sexuality and like the the talking about it, like the, the sort of the language of it to me is it's a very earthy kind of subject, and so I think it's good to talk about. You know, it's 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 a good thing to connect to people. It's um, a very grounding subject. I absolutely agree, and I love that you're doing so now with a whole panel of of awesome hosts on on TLC, uh, your new show all about sex. What do you most hope that viewers will will gain from the program? Well, I just hope people become orgasmic. That's my joy, and I feel like the way that uh, we view sex oftentimes is very puritanical, and sometimes we take that attitude into our own bodies where you have a lot of women, especially women, who are sort of enabled to orgasm. You know, they're, they're not orgasmic just because they feel guilty or ashamed or weird about whatever, and so they don't connect with that particular part of themselves that really makes us free. And, and it's, I think it's an important thing to address and also to rectify. So for me, um, the, the goal that I have sort of through this show is not necessarily improving sex in relationship, which is part of the show too, but I think for me it's helping people establish a relationship to themselves sexually that allows them to get there, whether it's kind of 
like exploring sex toys or exploring alternative sexualities or just any kind of a way where they could really identify what it is that makes them tick. I think that, that's what I'd like to do. One reason behind the orgasm gap is poor body image, or rather, the many forces that make it difficult to feel comfortable with our bodies and appearance as they are. In my very first interview with Dr. Megan Fleming, who would later become a fabulous resident expert here on Girl Boner, she shared tips I found pretty awesome. This episode was notable for another reason, too. My dog, Via, made a cameo. She joined me in the studio and remained calm until, well she didn't, and actually leapt up onto my lap facing the microphone at one point. I think that, you know, it's acceptance, right? Right now in this moment, I am who I am. And I did this uh, workshop up once at Kripalu, and I forget the name of the teacher. Um, but she did this exercise of women in a group. And, and we went around and said, I love my belly and I love my butt. And you repeat, like, I love my belly and I love my <laughs> butt. Because you know what? We all sort of chuckle. But the reality is most of us, even if you're like a size two, often are not comfortable in their own bodies. So it's really about in this moment, however I look, I am, and accept and love, embrace, or even, you know, an exercise can be, you know, pay attention to the three or five things that you really like about yourself. It could be your eyes, it could be um, the nape of your neck, whatever it is, but it's really drawing attention to the positive because the brain has a negativity bias. And I think, unfortunately, so often we're just... We, we notice and we attract the things that we'd like to change. And so it's really a skill to redirect your attention to what is happening, what you're welcoming, and what's present in this moment. So brilliant. Speaking of body image issues, you might think that becoming known as the flat-chested cast member of Baywatch could feel hurtful, but actress and activist Alexandra Paul lived this experience and has always embraced her petite breast size. It's funny because I... I grew up in New England, and we just never thought about breasts in the 70s. It wasn't like a thing. I never thought that my breasts were worse because they were small. And it wasn't until I got on Baywatch that I realized that some people do look at women as less sexual or sensual or beautiful because their breasts might be smaller. It was like, oh, my God, it was such a... Ref- Revelation. It was, wow. and but I never. I still liked my own breasts, so I never chose to have um, breast implants. Even though if other people want to do it, it's fine. It just doesn't fit my lifestyle, which is very athletic. Yeah. And um, the interesting thing was is that the first season I had long, longish hair was you know past my shoulders to my breasts actually, and I realized that I couldn't be that Baywatch babe. I just it wasn't that I. A, the bathing suit that they had for me was cut. There was one cut fits all, and it didn't fit me. And it, um, <laughs> So did. they actually ended up after the, I think it was the first or second season, uh, after the second or third season I was on, designing a bathing suit that fit my body type better, um, that looked better on me. And I also cut my hair because I wanted to become more myself mm-hmm. rather than trying to be something that I couldn't. And the long flowing hair kept me, like, still there. And so I cut it. And even though I'm not crazy, I wasn't crazy about my hair being so short. I think it's funny because people now say, oh, yeah, you're the one with the short hair. And I'm thinking, I actually only had short hair for two of the five seasons that I was on. But it had an impact. I guess so. I'm the one with the brown hair, the short hair and the small breasts. (laughs) She said the experience actually helped her self-image, which I found awesome. Alexandra is also known for the work she does for the planet. Before interviewing her, I watched a TED Talk she gave on overpopulation. 
Here's a short clip from it. I grew up in the 1960s, watching those TV commercials with those starving kids in Africa who stared vacantly at the camera with sad eyes and distended bellies. And in sixth grade, my glee club teacher, Mr. Collins, had us change the words in this song we were singing. Three billion people in the world to four billion people in the world. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe that the population was so big. And I was even more shocked because no one else in the class seemed at all disturbed by this fact. And a couple days later, I told my friend Susie Hollander that because there seemed to be too many people in the world for it to handle, that I wasn't going to have any kids. Into adulthood, Alexandra became even more concerned about the environment, animal rights, and gay rights. She walked five and a half weeks on the Great Peace March for global nuclear disarmament in 1986 and was arrested for civil disobedience over a dozen times between 1987 and 2000. So we also delved into child-free living, which can be almost as taboo of a subject as sex. When someone asks me, do I have, do I have any kids? And I say, oh, no. There's this silence, yes. and people don't know what to say, so I start talking really fast, saying, <laughs> we have a cat. And then and my husband's had a vasectomy, and they don't want to hear that. <laughs> and so I try and, like, fill the uncomfortable silence. It's, yeah, it's, um, I can relate. So <laughs> it's not anybody's fault. It's just that we're not used to meeting. It's just not, we're not the norm. And I come from, I'm very concerned about human overpopulation because now... When I was in sixth grade, the population was 4 billion. It's now 7.3 billion. It has more than doubled in my lifetime. And in my mother's lifetime, it has tripled the world population. And it's, we can't go on like this. That isn't to say no one should have kids, of course, but more conscientiousness, sex education, and freedom around our reproductive choices would be hugely impactful. Planet change isn't the only heavier topic we've covered here. In May of 2015, I released a two-part series on dating a sociopath. I shared a bit about my own experience and that of two other women, as well as psychologists. I picked it back up in 2017 with a chat with expert Jenny V. Wilson on healing from narcissistic or sociopathic abuse and signs you're having sex with someone on the sociopath spectrum, which can actually be pretty hot. I'd received a question from a listener who kept going back to her manipulative boyfriend because the sex was so good. After Dr. Megan weighed in, Jenny and I discussed it. Anybody who's going to tell me that it's the best sex of their life, I always respond, so far. You know, that so far. And and I also look at those kinds of experiences and those intense feelings that we're having. I can't get rid of this relationship because I've never felt like this. I mean... It's amazing if you kind of just recalibrate your point of view a little bit. You know you can have that. So, you know, it doesn't have to be attached to that person specifically. And I think what she was saying is absolutely, obviously right on that you've got to look at yourself and and what are the things that you're enjoying out of that sexual experience. And maybe it is just that you are... Kind of, even though you're with another person, you're having the opportunity to experience sexual pleasure by yourself in a way. Uh, So that's even better because you can recreate that. I always think like, well, you know, 
if it's the best sex of your life, maybe you need to have some more sex. Um, I'm not advocating promiscuity, but I am, you know, I am very much a believer in experience. If you, uh, if you want it is not a bad thing. Um, and, uh, I'm very anti double standard. Women are sluts, but men need experience, uh, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think, Everything that she said is relevant. I mean, it's like an addiction in these situations. You've got all these neurotransmitters going off. You've got the dopamine, which is, you know, the reward and pleasure neurotransmitter. Um, and if they're breaking up and getting back together and have, I mean, so many people, myself included, have had amazing breakup sex. What happens? You've been in a relationship for a really long time. You break up and then you fall back into bed together after some big discussion, teary-eyed, it's so intense, and everybody wants to feel something intense, and it just makes it that much better, and uh, that you want that bonding, and there's the oxytocin, you know, that's that's the other, that's the other hormone that, that goes into the mix there, and we want to bond, and oh, we just, again, we don't want to believe that the relationship wasn't any good, and, you know, and oh, but it's it's kind of an illusion because it, it will dissipate and then you're back to where you started from. Yes. I love what you said about maybe she's actually learning about herself because I remember feeling like this is going to sound slightly callous, but I kind of felt like he was my sex toy. Yeah. And it was like when you're with somebody that feels like they're there specifically for your pleasure, which I think is one potential perk, you know, or one of the reasons that maybe somebody who is lacking in empathy and who's so like goal oriented, sure. almost like very my, you know, I'm going to impress you almost with my ability to please you. It, that is that is something that not a lot of women give themselves because of all those societal negative messages that we've learned, yeah. you know, that our pleasure is not something that is a right. And so that can be really powerful. What are some of the other ways that perhaps somebody who's a narcissist or sociopath might be advantageous in the bedroom for your – why would it be better? Well, I, I think you touched upon it right there. They they want to impress so – Especially, I think, earlier on in the relationship, I think if you've been with the person for a longer amount of time, it's going to get – and this is another red flag uh, – sex is going to become more complicated. They may start to want it more or they might want want it less to sort of control you in that way. Um, and, and there is a need, especially in uh, sociopaths, for variety and – I mean. Humans in general, we, we're kind of riding the spectrum between our intrinsic need and desire for comfort and safety and our need and desire for adventure and uh, variety. But it's extreme in this case. And so they might start to bring things into the mix, want to bring in other people, want you to do things that you're not comfortable with. And at a certain point, you might start to acquiesce and be like, well, OK, because you think you might lose that relationship. So those are kind of danger signs. But, you know, the good thing is, again, there's it's, it's such a wide spectrum you know, maybe there is something good about having somebody who wants you to dress up in lingerie and, you know, and play with certain toys or wants to 
go down on you and you've never been comfortable with that or whatever it is that will push you past your comfort zone uh, in a safe way. It's when it's when you find yourself doing things that you really don't want to be doing that you probably want to turn around. Good advice for anyone, right? That series is really close to my heart, so please do feel free to reach out with related questions. I'm totally down for carrying it on with additional episodes. When people ask me about my favorite episodes, I often bring up my interview with Tika Thornton, who survived sex trafficking here in the U.S. Her story is heartbreaking, but also full of light and hope and resilience. Tika told me she comes from a long line of generational trauma in a place where deep challenges were the norm. You grew up in an area known as the jungles. Yes. Could you explain what that atmosphere was like? Well, it's an area that is, uh, it has to have at least 100 to 200 apartment buildings. Um, and it's, it's considered as a concrete jungle. That's why they call it the jungles. Um, and it, especially back in the 80s and 90s, it was very wild, um, telling my age. Um, it was, uh, and still is, I would assume, very saturated with drugs and alcohol and violence and um, gangs and, you know, just a lot of trauma in one area. So it was, I mean, now that I'm an adult, I see it as it was it was unhealthy. But as a child, it was my neighborhood. It's where I grew up. So I didn't really know any different until I started to go to school outside of uh, my neighborhood. Mm. Yeah, it was what you knew. Yeah. And it probably felt like, well, this is everyone's life. And as you grew to understand that it wasn't Mm -hmm. everyone's life and that there was unhealthy happenings around you, at a certain point, home life was challenging enough that you felt the need to leave. Could you tell us about that when you were 12? Well, like I said in my TED Talk, I I come from a long line of generational trauma. And so my parents did the best that they could with the amount of knowledge and, you know, experience that they've known. Um, My father, uh, he had a battle with addiction. Um, My mother, she was just, she wasn't very happy. And, you know, despite of knowing that I'm a child and, and understanding that I'm not supposed to be exposed to a lot of things that I was, I just, um, I didn't feel loved. Um, I know my dad, loves me. You know, he's my everything. Mm. I know my mom loves me. But at the time, it was just, I I didn't have an outlet. I didn't have anyone to talk to. I didn't have anyone to tell me, like, you know, your parents are going through a lot, and it has nothing to do with you. It's not a reflection of you. It's just something that they're going through within themselves. As a 12-year-old girl, there was no way that I can understand that. So I took it personally, and I felt like you know, my mother being a single parent at the time, I felt like I was a burden on her. And I just, I felt that if I, if I left, things would be better. 
She felt her mom would have more money to care for her younger brother and stress less about her, a, quote, average rebellious 12-year-old. So she left without a plan or any money or belongings and quickly met significant danger. So you mentioned in your talk that it was raining Mm -hmm. and this man pulled up and what did he say to you? Um, He was just like, hey, you know, and I I was trying to ignore him because like, you know, stranger danger or whatever. And so, and then he was just like, hey, you know, I just want to talk to you. And, you know, I'm not, not trying to harm you in any way. And he was just like, it's raining. Like, are you are you okay? And I'm just like, you know, I'm tired. You know, it's wet. It's probably about 12, 1 o'clock in the morning now. And it's just like, okay, I need to figure out something. You know, if somebody's willing to help me, I should allow them to help me. You know, that was my, my logic at that time. And so... Um, he asked me if I wanted to get in the car to get out the rain. And I was just like, yeah, I do. You know, my feet are tired. I'm tired. Like, I, I need I need some rest. Yeah, and some shelter. Yes. Even some respite from the, the cold rain. Yeah. 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 Who wouldn't want a little support? Yeah. And so you got into the car. Yes. And did you converse right away? I know he ended up offering you weed. Yeah. Well, we started talking and he was just asking me like, you know, how old am I? Of course, I lied about my age and asked me why I'm walking around the streets. I was just like, wow, me and my mom got into it. And, you know, I just left. And then it was just, um, you know, it was just some little, just a little conversation, probably about, about music or about what I like, you know, just things that kind of piqued my interest. To make you feel comfortable. To make me feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. exactly. And then he offered me some weed, you know, and it was just like, you know, I I know drugs, you know, I I know crack, I know alcohol, you know, I know at that time it was like PCP and heroin. And it's like, I knew all of those things. And I just knew that all of those things had a bad stigma. You know, but when it came to weed, it was just like, oh, it's just a recreational thing. It's cool. You know, you just get the munchies. Just chill out. Yeah, get a little goofy. Yeah, that's it. You know, so I was just like, you know, mm, if I'm going to try anything, it'd probably be this. So, and you probably wanted to feel a little better. I did. You know, and it was just, I wanted the goofy. Yeah. You know, I want the chill because I wasn't there. Yeah. So I, 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 I accepted the invitation. Sometime later, Tika woke up tied up in a room she didn't recognize and in a lot of pain. She realized the man had offered her more than weed and that significant sexual assault had happened. She endured this horror for several days, then smartly and bravely made her way out of it. From there, she ended up in Juvenile Hall, where she said she felt safe. There is so much more to Tika's story, as you can imagine, and I had so much trouble choosing highlights for this. By the end of the interview, she had us both in inspired tears. I do want to share one more excerpt, though, on different ways the trauma she experienced can impact one's sense of sexuality and a turning point in a relationship she was in once she had gotten out of trafficking and was off the streets. There was a point in time where, you know, you well, you have this two different sides of the spectrum. You have someone who is scared to open up and be sexual. Then you have someone that's over overly sexual. And I was 
on the side of being overly sexual because I always felt, you know, especially when I was younger, that sex equals love. You know, those lines were very blurred for me. So when I, it it took for me to feel an emptiness and finding out that I wasn't getting everything that I wanted in a relationship. Yes, the sex is great, but he's not giving me any time. He's not giving me, you know, he's, he's not giving me any attention. He's not giving me understanding. So once I was able to break down, you know, and, and put everything on a scale and say, yeah, sex is great, but he's a jerk, you know? And it was just like, it, it wasn't working for me. And it took, once I broke up with my ex, I had to take a step back. And I really looked at my life. And I really was just like, okay, there's something missing. I need to humble myself completely, even in that way. You know, far as my financial part, I had to humble myself. But then also in the list of what I needed in a man. Because my list was very, very shallow. It's very superficial. You know, most women, we want him to be fine, good looking. You know, we want him to have money and we, we want him to be a rock star in bed. Like that, for young girls, for young women, that's what we want. That is the standard. What we've been taught to find sexy, right? Exactly. But, but what I learned or what I had to learn was that I need a compassionate man. I need an empathetic man. I need an understanding man. You know, I need someone that's going to love me as much as I love them. Someone that's going to, to see me for who I am and not for what I can do. Thankfully, Tika is in a healthy, strong, and vibrant place now and advocates for others as a crisis case manager. You can learn even more in her TEDx talk, which is called It is About Time to Bring Awareness to Human Trafficking. Last year brought many new adventures to my girl boner world, including my first live for an audience recordings. The first took place at Storyfort, a festival in Boise, Idaho I attended thanks to Amberjack Publishing. I read from my girl boner book publicly for the first time and interviewed comedian Emma Arnold before an awesome audience. So exciting. So I'm here at Storyfort for my first time in Boise for my first time and promoting my book for the first time. Thank you. Emma spoke very candidly about her personal journey, including what it was like growing up in a conservative region with hippie parents and around a lot of naked lesbians. And I had to ask. So did you learn about girl boners? Did you learn about pleasure? No, God, not at all. Um, For as groovy as my family was, you know, they still had the sort of American sexuality. And um, I don't think anybody talked about uh, orgasms or, and it's funny too, since I grew up around a bunch of lesbians, maybe, I mean, maybe part of it was one time we were all in the pool in the back and I looked up and I saw my aunt and her wife um, you could, our, we had a shower window that was like frosted, so you couldn't really see in, but you could see in. And I saw them making out, and I remember just being like, oh, god damn it. Like, that's gonna stick in there forever. <laughs> like, it's right now, I could draw you a picture of it. Um, so it's surprising that I grew, I grew up with our, like all these empowered women around me, but like female sexuality wasn't really discussed very much. And I, you know, I, this is, 
kind of surprising. Like, honestly, I don't think I masturbated till I was like 21. Like, not successfully. Like, I kind of knew something was happening down there once in a while. And I honestly got married the first guy who found my clit. Like, I was like, okay, he's a he's a magic man. And he this is love. This is what love feels like. So I married him. And it wasn't until later that I was like, oh, you can just do this yourself. You don't have to get married when you're 19. It turns out. Later in our chat, we discussed her healing journey from sex and porn addiction. I loved what she shared about accepting feelings and how powerful doing so can be. I think there's so much growth potential in our discomfort. I I really commend you for that. Could you speak a little bit about anything that you found helpful? You mentioned the 12-step meetings. I know several people who really benefit. Um, What has helped you the most as far as accepting yourself and working through the shame? I mean, it's been a long process. I've been in recovery uh, for about six years, and um, I had about four years of sobriety, and then I had a relapse, or about maybe a little longer than that. Um, I, it's definitely, it's, a, it's been a hard thing. Uh, the, the meetings have helped me. All the meetings have helped me with my multiple problems. Um, therapy has helped me a ton. I, I was talking to someone recently, and they were like, I would never do therapy, and I was like, it's 2018, man. Like, you're like the one guy not in therapy. <laughs> You're a lone wolf out there, you know, just like, I'll just muscle this down and do it on my own. Um, so, so therapy has been immensely helpful. Actually, journaling and meditating. Um, I had a, Addiction has a lot of rituals, and I had a lot of rituals around, um, around my issues, and I've tried to replace those addictive rituals with healthy rituals. So in the morning, I wake up, and I meditate, and I journal, and I try to replace the things that I used to do with healthy, with healthy behaviors, which just sort of, you know, frameworks my day around trying to be a healthy person and I found journaling has been probably one of the healthiest like most helpful things I've done it's just bookending my day every day with in the morning what I'm grateful for what I'm trying to do you know setting my intention for the day at the end of the day saying how did I do what did I fuck up you know who did I hurt where was I wrong what did I get right you know I just try to bookend my day with that and that's been really helpful that's beautiful I love the way that journaling lets you freely express and I feel like I have an addictive personality as well and I feel like it's so, it's been a challenge for me. Something I still work at is allowing these big feelings mm. and, and being present in them instead of trying to like, you know, diet it away. Oh, or yeah. drink it away or whatever the addiction thing is that someone's struggling with. Uh, ha- have you experienced that? Oh, yeah. I mean, my family is Swedish and you do not feel things in a Swedish family. Yeah, you same. tuck it away, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and that, so... Um, even just feeling small feelings was a big, like, I, I feel like I, even little things like, what is this? What's this? What's happening? What's happening right now? And I'd be like, you're happy. It's okay. Like I, I've had panic with like good feelings where I'm like, what, what is like, I just have so little experience. I've been numb. Honestly, looking back, I've probably been numb for probably 35 years of my life, just really pretty baseline numb. And so now to come out of that, to be really for the first time, very soberly in my own life and feeling things has been pretty overwhelming sometimes. And I have had pages of all caps where I had to just kind of be gentle with myself and be like, this is okay. You can have compassion for this. You don't have to judge this and be like, this is some crazy shit. You know, I'd tell you like, it's okay. It's an all caps. It's an all caps morning is where we're at. And that has taken some time to just have compassion and and acceptance. I've been saying recently a lot that I feel like the biggest thing that for in my, in my recovery and in my mental health journey has been self-acceptance. Um, just 
just letting myself be who I am with flaws, just just saying, that's okay. Like when something happens when, and I'm like, oh, I'm really jealous. That's an ugly emotion. That's okay. That's okay. That's who you are today. That's just what's coming up right now. And just kind of let it pass and just be nice with it. Here is to accepting those all caps days. Such a great phrase. Before we get to the creepy stuff and the love story I mentioned up top, here are a few sex tips from educators and therapists I've interviewed starting with sex educator L. Chase, for anyone who's wondered what is up with the G-spot in an episode called Curvy Body Sex and Sexual Self-Inquiry. The G-spot isn't the, the shiznit for everybody, yeah. right. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, or sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Mm. It can be a very fickle friend. And what she wishes more people understood about pleasure. For me, it's go slow. You know, don't, don't go right for it and just be gentle and go slow. So I think, again, we, we see this on television or we see it in porn and it's just going boom, 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 mm, boom, boom. Mm, and, mm. you know, uh, clitorises are, are very, can be very sensitive. They could also, you know, you just don't know how that is for each person. Mm-hmm. Same with penises, you know. Some, some penis owners like a really firm grip. Some don't. Some just like the head. Some don't, you know. Um, so it's always, you know, go slow and be gentle for me. In the same episode, renowned sexologist Cindy Darnell spoke about mindful masturbation and sexual curiosity. I think practicing masturbation um, without having orgasm as a goal, but more about having exploration and sensation as um, something that you're curious about. So we want to be facilitating curiosity by going, what happens if I touch this part with this particular pressure or this particular speed or this particular stroke or this toy with this lube um, for this amount of time, what happens? How does my body respond? So it's a, it's kind of like approaching the body um, from a sort of a mapping point of view, getting a sense of how does the body respond at different points at different times and for cis women at different points in their cycle as well. So that you you're clitoris may or may not respond um, with more sensation at certain pe- certain times in your menstrual cycle for women who are uh, still menstruating um, than others. And paying attention to that can be useful moving forward in partnered sex because when you know that about your body, then that's information that you can share with any potential partners. And that presence of mind to facilitate curiosity rather than outcomes and goals actually gives you a broader color palette to work with because then you can go okay so these are the color ranges that I have available to me at this time of the month or at this time of morning or evening or whatever because that'll also change Um, and it's less about am I doing it right and more about what happens if. In November 2017, awesome Kate Scalisi of Passion by Kate weighed in on anal sex and some of the common misinformation that gets passed around. What a lot of people don't know, and this is just because of lack of education, is that the, so the same nerve, the prenatal nerve, which goes down to the clitoris or the tip of the penis, it, it branches off. And so part of it goes to the front of the body, but part of it innervates the anus. And so you're really stimulating the same nerve endings in a different way. It's not exactly the same, but um, you're stimulating the same nerve, at least, that you do when you're touching a penis or a clitoris, right? And so, or, or labia or scrotum or whatever. It's the same nerve that runs through the anus. So, yeah, there's a lot of potential for pleasure there. But one thing that I'm actually seeing happening a bit now, too, is the pendulum is swinging the other way, where 
anal is becoming like the thing to do. And so if you don't do it, there's that there's that subtle shaming that's happening if you're like, oh, that's not for me. And, I, you know, I hate how that happens. And obviously hope that the pendulum will will recenter itself into like, if you want to try about sex, great. Or anal play, great. If not, you don't have to. And the other thing about the butt, too, is we often only think about penetration, just like we do, right? Always. It's always about all the fucking penetration. But in reality, there's so many ways you can start kind of playing with the ass and exploring it. And I always recommend people just start with, like, a really nice butt massage. And if you've ever had a massage therapist or a physical therapist um, who has worked on the glute muscles, which are really key muscles and We can go in another tangent about how many massage therapists won't touch them for blah, blah, blah. But they're really key muscles. And it feels amazing working into the hips and the glutes. And so that can be just a really sensual, relaxing, relieving, sexy, stress-reducing, all of of those things. And honestly, if if you're new to penetration um, and that's where you're you're going for with the butt, then I I recommend doing that first because it's going to help relax everything and so you're not as tense which can make anal sex painful and and so on and so forth. And any sort of anal penetration should never, never, never hurt. If it does hurt, you should definitely stop. Yes, that is so true. Speaking of sexual pain, I loved interviewing pelvic floor physical therapist Heather Jeffcoat. Here's what she shared on the line between pain that's no big deal versus something that may require treatment last September. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest ways you would know is if you're having to significantly modify what you would otherwise do because of the pain you're experiencing. So, yes, you'd be like, yeah, I really wasn't very aroused and maybe should use more lube. Okay, then next time if you use more lube and you're still having pain, then maybe that is a bigger issue that you can address through pelvic floor um, therapy. Um if it's to where you can't have sex at all, then yes. Like, and, and as long as that's your goal. I mean, if that's not your goal, I'm not going to force that on you. But um, if your goal is to have penetrative intercourse and you physically can't or you can't kind of hang with it because it just hurts so much, you can only last like 30 seconds. Like, those are big issues. And those will most likely cause you to modify your activity. You're going to be avoiding sex. Uh, beyond that, how's that going to make your partner feel like they're going to feel rejected and I find with my patients their stories it does not just happen around sex it carries over into every facet of their life there's always this tension there so it can really negatively impact their relationship if there's problems with that and they're so many times so treatable that you know it's just an unnecessary thing but Again, you know, they tell their doctor and their doctor is like, oh, you just need to relax. It's just because you're not very experienced. Just try to have a glass of wine or use more lube. And, you know, so I've had patients that do all those things and they like get so drunk and it still hurts. And, you know, that's just not good medical advice. Emotional pain can also really influence sex and pleasure, of course. In August of last year, Jim and Nika Eborn helped me weigh in for a listener who wanted to learn ways to better support a partner who has endured trauma. And people find that checking in, which I really want to like fight against, checking in can be really sexy because you're able to ask for your needs to be met, which again, these are not things that are allowed or allotted when you're sexually assaulted. So giving that them that power, you're actually supporting them 
with with an, within a way that they may not even realize it by checking in like, hey, does this feel good? Allow them to respond. I think that's one of my favorite things. And also like I get my needs met, so it's not like crazy. But I, I just want you to continue, you know, checking with your partner and trying things, asking them like, well, what do you like? How can I support you? Um, if you want to try something new, talk through it. Go to a demo or something to see how it's done. I think there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but I think you're doing a great thing by, you know, realizing it's not about you, but still being very mindful. So are you ready for my freakiest girl boner moment? It happened during what was one of the most memorable episodes for me, given the subject matter. One day while Googling, do ghosts have sex? you know, as you do, I thought it was time to delve deeper into the topic girl boner style. So I invited paranormal investigator Eric Van Leer to join me in the studio. First, I asked how his path in ghostery, ghosthood, being a ghost expert started. But when I was younger, I was into Satanism and horror films and all that, you know, wild stuff. So I used to go to the urban exploration and uh, urban legend locations in the valley and elsewhere. And one day we were at this place that's actually part of the Santa Monica Mountains. And there's a deep ravine there. And uh, supposedly it had some ties to the Manson family. So we get there and park the car. I'm dressed all in black. I had been reading out of the Satanic Bible. And as soon as we get there we hear a woman from the bottom of the ravine yelling. I used to live in Yosemite, and I know it wasn't a coyote or anything like that. And, you know, if she had been killed, obviously, you know, she wouldn't, or you would suppose that she wouldn't be making sounds unless she was a a ghost. Um, And obviously, you know, someone, there's no way for anyone to get down there to murder or rape her. It's just impossible. So we heard that, and this was one of my and my friend who I was with first experiences, and it kind of freaked us out. So we got back in the car, and the car wouldn't start, and I looked under the hood, and the radiator hose was actually shredded completely in half. Not like from wear and tear, but like something could actually rip it. So I was like, wow, you know, what what, what are we dealing with here? Scary. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was scary. Um, the funny and ironic thing is, is that for some strange reason, I actually had duct tape on me in the car, <laughs> something that I probably only carried that week. Uh, I don't remember what the reason was for, but I was able to duct tape it up and, you know, get the car started enough to go to a mechanic the next day. Eric told me he joined meetup groups and started attending lectures. And at one point, a paranormal investigator called him out as a spirit magnet, someone who spirits are drawn to. He now leads tours and helps spirits cross over, and he was thankfully open to my ghost-having-sex questions. I don't know if I would say it's common, but I have definitely heard that before, and I have actually heard where some women have said that the entities were the best lovers that they've ever had. Wow, that's really interesting. (laughs) Huh, sign me up. Um, (laughs) At one point... Eric shared that an investigation led him to being sexually assaulted by a ghost. It's quite a story. And while he was talking about it, the freaky thing I mentioned happened. 
I mean, for about five minutes, him and I were laughing hysterically about it. We thought it was the funniest thing. Because you probably don't hear too many <laughs> messages from ghosts about your penis, right? Right. Yeah, that's unusual. Yeah. And then we started going more, you know, to the house more and more, and crazy stuff started happening. We did some scrying in a mirror, which is where you stare at a mirror in a pitch black room with just a candle. And we all saw a little girl and a woman that looked like an old hag. Um, I mean, there were just tons of experiences. I saw a figure that looked like the Grim Reaper, as well as a, this lady that had uh, spent the night there one night with us. Something amazing just happened while we're talking. Oh, no. I just got scratched on my neck. Did you really? I swear to you. <laughs> my neck is burning. Chills, you're kidding. No, it's right here. Uh-oh, is somebody mad we're talking about this? I don't know. <laughs> but No um, offense, ghost. Um, ghost, if you're listening, I hope it was cool that we talked about you. I figured some listeners might want to have sex or a romantic experience with a ghost. You know, maybe that ghost scratch turned you on. So later in the show, I asked Eric for some tips. If you wanted to have a sexual relationship with an entity, especially a demon, then some sort of uh, black magic ritual... Um, or even blood sacrifice. And I'm not talking about killing someone, but you know, doing a ritual where you draw a pentagram and you put a few drops of your own, quote unquote, own, not someone else's or animal blood in the pentagram and do some kind of incantation, then perhaps that can happen. Um, please don't kill anyone and proceed with any bloody summonings with caution and at your own risk. You know, maybe fantasizing about ghosts is a better idea. Eric said he personally wouldn't advise luring a ghost into bed anyway. I'm not sure how I feel about all the ghost stuff, but I aim to keep an open mind and love having opportunities to delve into topics I know so little about. Another thing I love? Love stories. Last year, I interviewed Joan Price, an incredible sex educator who is well into her golden years and proves that gusto and passion can be ageless and deepen with time. We explored her personal journey from growing up the daughter of a gynecologist, sex after the dawn of birth control, and multiple waves of feminism, plus a real-life, swoon-worthy tale of love. I had the great honor and joy of meeting the man who would become my great love. His name was Robert Rice, his last name and mine off by one letter, so that was confusing to people. Once we became a couple, but we, we took a long time between meeting and first kiss was nine months, not by my wish. I mean, you're, you're talking to someone whose idea is that the only problem with instant gratification is it takes too long. <laughs> and here I was trying to, uh, powerfully attracted to this man who was 64 when we met, I was 57, he was 64. He was an artist, very contemplative, quiet man who believed that anything worth doing was worth taking plenty of time. <laughs> In many ways, we would not imagine. <laughs> so you had the yin-yang oh, opposites attract. I pursued him for nine months. And the story of that is in my first senior sex book, Better Than I Ever Expected, 
straight talk about sex after 60. Our love story is the framework for that book. Mm. Well, finally, once we had our first kiss, we didn't stop kissing. Mm. Uh, we became a couple. We eventually married. And we were together for seven years to the day, first kiss to last kiss. Yes, okay. to the day. Until I lost him to cancer. Mm. I'm so sorry. Yeah. It was during the time we were together that I changed careers. I had been first a high school English teacher, then a health and fitness writer and instructor. And of course, I pull all that with me in what I do now. But when Robert and I were together, particularly in the first couple of years of our relationship, our sexual interaction was so hot, so exhilarating, so, oh my God, why didn't anyone tell us it could be like this? And I'd already written some books about health and fitness, and I'm looking for, there must be books about this kind of experience. I didn't find it. I think now there are. There weren't then. So Robert said, well, you're the writer, write your own. And I said, all right, I will. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that, I, that this would become my life wow. from then on. So at age 61, Better Than I Ever Expected was published. And since that, so for 13 years, I've been writing and speaking out loud about senior sex. And this is, this is my beat. <laughs> and I love it. And when Robert knew he was dying, he said to me, your work is so important. Promise me you'll keep doing your work. And I said, I'll promise you anything you want if you just don't die. And he said, I don't have control over that, but you have control over whether you keep doing your work and people need you. So I'll always remember that conversation. I will too. Oh, thank you. And we're both crying now. Yeah, that, wow. Joan inspires me, and so do you all. Without even knowing it these past five years, you have supported me through difficult times, provided such a strong sense of purpose, and inspired me and made me laugh with your messages and questions. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing your experiences and most of all for prioritizing your own sexual self-discovery and journeys to authenticity. You are what keeps me going and my heart, well, swinging. And all of y'all, we have another featured toy of the month. Yay. Swing. Why do I keep swinging? I'm hitting all the... Yeah, what, I have all different... Swing? I have other buttons I'm supposed to be pressing, and today I'm very swingy. Do you, do you say, swing, like... Swing, swing. <laughs> when you get turned on, do you say... Let me ask you. Do you say, I'm wet, or do you say, I have a chub? Do you get I a boner? What do you say? Because it depends. Yeah, you know, I've never said I have a chub before. I, I have definitely many... Well, I used to... That used to be all I ever said about my arousal was like, I have a girl boner. That's where my kind of brand evolved from. Um, so I still use girl boner. And I'll say that I'm wet or I just show that I'm turned on. I've never said well, you can't show with you anybody. You can. Not even on the phone. Language. Oh, that's true. That's true. I, I, How can you show unless you show the wet? You can't show the wet. That's kind of weird. <laughs> that's I true. Mean, I with know your what, eyes, with, you know, lust. Yeah, but if you you're going to, if you're like, yeah. I'm, what do you say? Do you say, 
I say, <laughs> I say, depends on my my energy. If I feel like more boyish, I'll say, I just have a I have a chub, or I have a I'm hard, or something, or I'll say, uh, I'm kind of weird. It depends. It depends on how yeah. my energy. I'm gonna try that. Have you ever said one. my hood pulls back? No, but I like it. That's kind of gross, but it's funny. It's kind of funny though. I <laughs> I might shock I might shock my partner, but that would be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hoodie. Amazing. Can you say hoodie? Because it there does have a little hood. Yes, it does. It does. I like that. We need to do a whole episode just on on that terminology. Oh yeah. Let's so many do options. It. We should write a book, a vocab. Yeah, let's do. We're missing words. My girlfriend. I said I have a chub, and my girlfriend the other day she goes. Do you have a chum? I'm like, ew, chum. No, that's like, <laughs> that's like shark food. That's like chub as in chubby. How embarrassing. Oh my gosh, that is so hysterical. That was Sandra Valls, a comedian whose work you really must check out. And that segment was sponsored by The Pleasure Chest, where you really must shop. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head to my website, augustmclaughlin.com, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Stitcher to find these and more episodes in full. I'd also greatly appreciate a rating and simple review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. My name is Gabe. I engineered and edited Girl Boner for a few years starting at the beginning in 2014. At the time the show started, I was a not exceptionally worldly 22-year-old kid. I remember being both surprised at how honest and confident August was in talking about sex, and uh, frankly, I was also a little embarrassed at the openness myself. But in some ways, I think that's kind of the point. Sex doesn't have to be taboo. In the years I worked with August on the show, I learned so much, I met so many warm and interesting people, and now I can actually talk about sex openly without turning red in the face. So congratulations on 250, August. Your show is a light and an important one. Here's to 250 more and hopefully to an eventual spinoff where you get to focus solely on learning about sociopaths. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire Mackenzie Mazel as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.